students in medical school learn early on about the difference between curative treatment and palliative treatment. Curative and palliative. Curative treatment, uh, curative medicine focuses on what it sounds like, curing the disease. Curing uh, whatever's going on inside the patient to bring them back to wholeness. But palliative has a different objective, an entirely different objective. You see, as many of us know, palliative treatment only targets symptoms. It's only aimed at alleviating the suffering of the patient. It's only targeted to make the disease that's still taking a toll, the illness that's still affecting the patient, more tolerable. And I, this morning, speaking from this psalm, am concerned that every week, men and women and children gathering for worship, whether they're going to, a ma- to mass or a mosque or a temple or a synagogue, and even a church, are coming with burdens and receiving palliative care, not curative. What I mean is, the burdens that are driving them to their places of worship, their communities of faith, are not being met with an answer that treats what's going on at the root, but rather is a fix to relieve symptoms of a deeper problem. And I'm talking about a man or a woman coming into a church seeking the divine, seeking God, and receiving a human-centered way of living. And I'm talking about someone coming in near the end of their rope, to, to use the cliche, and receiving a do-it-yourself message. These teachings, these sermons, these things said aloud in a community of faith that do not aim at the heart of a person, as we see in Psalm 51, that do not go right for the heart, but instead focus on behavior as the solution. This is palliative care. And the heart of a man, the heart of a woman, is actually exactly what God is going for. So it might be because it's easier to talk about behavior. It might be because it's simpler to tweak habits. I think a lot of the time it's simply unintentional, accidental. And I think most of the time it has to do with our hardwired tendency to look at reforming our behavior rather than reforming our hearts. But in this process, we make the mistake of thinking that God's primary objective, that the heart of God is to reform our behavior. That the very thing on the top of God's list is me acting good. That's God's wish list. That's number one. I should act good. And so we focus on habits instead of the heart. And we focus on behaviors instead of our being. 
but we shouldn't be treating ourselves with this type of palliative care if the cure is available. And let me clarify, as many of you are probably thinking, in the book of Leviticus and throughout the scriptures, God tells his people, you will be holy as I am holy. And he says that in the context of law, of rules, of commands. But think for a second about how God is holy. Is God holy because of what he does or because of who he is? What he does is holy and right and perfect and good because who he is is holy, good, perfect, and right. So while the context is commands given to his people to obey him and follow him, when God says, be holy for I am holy, he is going for the heart. And if you're still not convinced you can hear Jesus' words in Matthew 15 when Jesus addresses religious scholars, religious leaders, and he says to them, Well, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus Christ says, God says, what you say sounds good, but your heart is far away, and the heart is what I'm after. God is going for our hearts, and when we say heart, we're not only talking about an emotional center, but the depths of who we are, our being, our purpose. This is the Hebrew idea of the heart, the depths of the man, the depths of the woman, the depths of the child. It's who we are most truly inside. And God wants this. He wants our hearts because from the heart flows the behavior. From the heart flow the habits. These will flow naturally out of a love for God. You've been patient with me already in this introduction we're going to get to Psalm 51. Because David brings this truth about God going after the heart. He brings this truth out very sharply. You see, the psalm was written out of an event, a series of events, a series of decisions in a man's life that were an utter and complete tragedy. Probably the most infamous sin in all of Scripture, sins, and in your bulletin I've included a reference to the chapters from which this psalm springs, if you'd like to read that later. But I'll give you the gist. David, the king of Israel, should be out fighting. Instead, he's home. He sees a woman. He uses his power, he uses his power to be with her against her will. She becomes pregnant, so he attempts a cover-up, and when the cover-up fails, he ultimately orders the pseudo-accidental death of Uriah, the husband of the woman, Bathsheba. And we know from another chapter in Scripture, Uriah was actually a member of a group known as 
David's mighty men, 30 elite soldiers that were with him in the trenches of some major battles. And I, I've, don't, I've toned down the language. I've even toned down some of the language of the Bible. Just You've give, been given the reference to the story and out of sensitivity and not wanting to add shock value to something that's already very shocking. The sins are shocking, but they're even more shocking when you think about who David was. David, king of Israel, who wrote this psalm. He was originally said, it said twice in the Bible, he's a man after God's own heart. David wanted to know God's essence, his heart, who he really was. That was what David yearned for. And you've seen that this summer as we've gone through many of the Psalms, many of them written of David. But it's even more interesting with David because he's the smallest of seven brothers. And when he is chosen as king, there is feedback given to God that says, he's too scrawny, he's too young, he's too little. And what's God's response? You're looking at outward appearance, but I look at the heart. David's seeking my heart. I'm seeing David's heart. It's a heart-to-heart connection between David and God, and yet we stare into this yawning void of the tragedy of sin. And what does David say? He cries out in the dead center of the psalm, have Create in me a clean heart, O God, as we just sang. Verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God. David knows that God is going for his heart. And he knows that any, at this point, any behavior, anything that he would adjust, uh, <laughs> there's a deeper issue going on. It will not cure the problem. This morning's sermon is titled, The Heart of God for the Heart of the Sinner. And I want to ask the question this morning, what is the heart of God for the heart of the sinner? We are all in need of God's mercy as people who sin. I'm taking that as an assumption moving forward. If you want to have a conversation about original sin, some of the beliefs of the church there, I'm happy to talk about that. But you, can't, you don't read Psalm 51 without, a, without presupposing there's a sin problem here. So that's what we're looking at. And the question we have to ask is we often sit in our own lives with David and turn the psalm over in our minds as we process our own repentance. Is what is God's heart towards me right now? I'm asking him to create in me a clean heart. What is God's heart towards me? So we're looking at that this morning, the heart of God for the heart of the sinner because God is going for our hearts. We're going to make three observations throughout this psalm. Uh, This is a massive psalm. There's a lot that could be said here. It's both long and deep, so we're not going to hit everything. But here are three observations that we're going to look at together. Stephen, if you don't mind, just we'll cycle through them. God's faithful and merciful heart for sinners is the first observation. The second observation, God's tender and nurturing heart for sinners. God's tender and nurturing heart for sinners. The third one is God's inclined and willing heart for sinners. I'll repeat those as we go through. These are three observations we're going to make about the heart of God for the heart of the sinner because as we have already said and as this psalm shows us, God is going for our hearts. 
He wants to cut at the root. Here's the first observation. God's faithful and merciful heart for sinners. This is who he is when he's hearing the prayer of a sinner, beholding the sins of a man, of a woman, the brokenness. This is who God's heart is. It's, it's faithful and it's merciful. It's actually the first thing David throws himself on. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. David begins his confession by asking for mercy and forgiveness. And he does this on the basis of two things. Did you catch the double according to's? According to, according to what? His steadfast love and his abundant mercy. So David is asking for forgiveness and he's asking for it because these two things are true about the heart of God. The first one, the first line, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It's the first line. Here where it says steadfast love, David uses a, a Hebrew word that has a lot of meaning, hesed. Hesed, it's an incredibly important word in the Bible. We can translate it just fine in English, but what I mean to say to you is that we, it's, it's, uh, the word is not hard to translate into English, but the idea of the word is not something that's in our culture. The idea can be complicated. Some Bibles translate it steadfast love. Other Bibles go with unfailing love. Whether it's steadfast love or unfailing love, you can't just say love because it has packed into it, wrapped into it, the idea of fidelity, of covenant faithfulness, of loyalty. We understand in English, we have a pretty broad range about how we would use love, right? I love my wife. I love this burrito. Very different. Uh, very different meanings. Hesed makes it clear. I'm not heseding a burrito. There's no covenant here. There's no loyalty here. Very little loyalty. Uh, so that's the idea here. That's why they write steadfast love, because it's a reliable, faithful love. It's who God is. And some of us have had grandparents that we've seen celebrate 50, 60, and even 70 years of marriage. Been blessed to see this in my family. And think about the decades of Hesed, of steadfast love, of faithful love, of loyalty, of coming back to the person when they don't feel like it because they're committed. And it's a love that commits despite the emotion. That's Hesed. And so David appeals to this according to your loyalty, God, according to your steadfast love, have mercy on me. It's the only chance I would have right now. It's the only chance I would have right now. And the second thing he says, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This is the idea of an, an abundant mercy, a tender mercy. And I came across something in studying for this that kind of surprised me. It's that in, uh, in the King James Bible, this is sometimes translated as bowels of mercy, which is a very strange phrase. But the idea there in the Old English is to get at an inward longing and a yearning for mercy. Bowels of mercy, abundant mercy, depths of mercy. 
David falls on this too. He knows he has to in light of his sin. In a book I finished recently, uh, some of you have read called uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, who pastors a church in Naperville, Illinois. He talks about this idea of, of abundant mercy, of bowels of mercy. He recalls a time he went to India and he saw a man sitting in a cardboard box. And this man was destitute. His clothes were ragged. He was missing teeth. But Ortland writes, the most distressing thing about him was actually that his fingers had been slow, it was clear they had been slowly eaten away by leprosy. He was a leper. And in his book, he has the honesty to ask the question, what, what happened in my heart in that moment when I saw that man? What was going on in my heart? My fallen, prone-to-wander heart, he says. Compassion. Compassion. A little anyway, he continues. But it was tepid compassion. The fall has ruined me, all of me, including my emotions. So some of us have felt this before. It's so insightful what he says here, right? We see someone in need of mercy, and the, we feel the margin of mercy that we should as fallen creatures. It's tepid. It's lukewarm compassion at best, and that's not what's said of God in Psalm 51. In light of this sin, in light of what David is calling out for, it's not a tepid response from God according to your abundant mercy. Church, if we feel that tepid compassion at times and we even know, I should feel even more grief for this person, Christ, he feels it, he feels it fully. He embodies it, is better to say even, fully. True compassion, real compassion. So this is the first observation that we have, God's faithful and merciful heart for sinners faithful to us and merciful beyond our deserving. This is as true for us today as it was for David many years ago. And this is so counterintuitive. This is so different from who we are. When someone is unfaithful to us, we often pull away from them. We shut them out or kind of just drop off their map. In fact, this is one of the most subtle and common killers in marriage. A besetting, bitter quietness. Pulling away in silence as a response to languishing love and languishing mercy. But this is not what the heart of God is for a sinner. David has to fall on it immediately. That God is faithful and God has a deep mercy that goes much, much farther than his sin even does. That's what he's falling on, according to, according to. And some of you this morning are carrying a heavy weight, kind of like a burden on your back, but really it's on your heart. And it's, it's, it's laboring under the assumption that there is a tepid response from God, a finicky love from God. David is telling us this morning, the Bible is telling us this morning, that is not true of the heart of God. The heart of God for the sinner is to pour his steadfast love and his abundant mercy out on them. I 
Observation two. We'll go to the second observation. God's tender and nurturing heart for sinners. This is the second thing we see. We've seen God's faithfulness and his love. Now the tender and nurturing heart. As we've said, Psalm 51 pulls back the curtain on someone's darkest hour. And in that darkest hour, we get a glimpse into the heart of God, the being of God. And everything around us that breathes with human lungs says, get your behavior right, and then you will be accepted. Do the right things, and then I might be willing to accept your heart. But it's the opposite with God. He goes right for our core and who we are, forgiving us and loving us, drawing us out to be affectionate towards him. And you might say, what does it mean that you're saying God doesn't care about our behavior or what I do? Is he just going to suspend judgment on my actions and kind of like pivot to this kind of oozy love that's like just kind of meaningless and showered on everyone? And what, is, what would that even mean for me? No, this psalm is a psalm of confession. It's arising out of real sin at a real time. And David says in verse 4, against you and only you have I sinned. He's acknowledging the consequences. He's not lowering the stakes at all. And he even says further in verse 4, this justifies your words. This makes God blameless in his judgment of man because the error is plain. And even further in verse 5, he talks about his birth and his origin in sin. So this is not belittling at all our need of forgiveness or that sin is no big deal. It raises the stakes and God's mercy is also raised and tender towards us. We'll look at three verses in brief succession. Secession, succession. For God's tender and nurturing heart. See them in three places. This, like I said, is a, is a pretty expansive psalm. We're going for themes here. We're going for themes. What is God's heart? Here are some more themes regarding God's heart. Verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is the heart of God. This is his desire to nurture us, to use a term like child-rearing, to rear us in his truth, in our very depths. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to see like submarine footage of near the bottom of the ocean, a deep darkness, sunken vessels, dark inaccessible pits, maybe even lost and forgotten treasures. And when you get down far enough on the ocean floor, I know this from Netflix, not experience, the landscape of the water, it actually looks kind of like Phoenix. It's very just deserty. Uh, not, not a lot down there, but, but some dunes and rocks and some bizarro fish. Picture that deep darkness in your own heart, in your own life, something that almost feels inaccessible, sunken memories, dark emotions, if I may carry the metaphor, and even lost explanations for why you just did the thing you did, why you just reacted the way you did. The heart of God is to impart his truth, his wisdom into those parts of our hearts that we can't even fully access in our finite state. 
David testifies here, you're teaching me wisdom in the secret heart. So God is nurturing us, bringing us along in his image, transforming us even in the depths that we can't access ourselves. And it says you de- he delights to do that. He delights to see his truth grow out of us. So God's nurturing us in verse 6 with his truth inwardly. And in verse 10, we're seeing a nurturing as well. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Uh, there is a word that David could have used in Hebrew that means make or create in the most basic way. I make a chicken coop, right? I make a sandwich. Uh, I make an iPhone app. That's not what David says here. David uses a unique word that does not appear often in the Bible, but it does only of God, and it's the word barah. Barah. He says, created me a clean heart. Think back to Genesis 1. I'm sorry to nerd out on the Hebrew. I think that's the last one. But think back to Genesis 1 when God creates the heavens and the earth. It's not a basic form of make there. It's barah. God's creating. We create a house, but God creates the heavens and the earth. Do you see the difference? We create light bulbs, but God creates the star constellations. And men and women, out of his image, in his image, out of the dust. And so in a profound way, our creation, our making, is only ever making what God has already created. And we see what David is asking for here. He's asking directly, God, you created me a clean heart. I'm not going to be able to do this. This is your work. This is as miraculous as your creation in Genesis 1 because it's your working. It's your activity. I need to be turned out and reset. I need my inner man to be overhauled. God, I need you to bring in the big guns is something that came to mind on this. Bring in the big guns. Only you can do it. Created me a clean heart. And would we think that God would not do that? Would we think that there would be a prayer in the middle of the Psalms that God does not intend to answer? No, no. He will create in us a clean heart. We must go to him and know that that is his work. And then the third observation we make on this point is verse 17. Go to verse 17 with me. We continue with the heart theme for his tender and nurturing heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is a somewhat of a shocking claim in an ancient Jewish culture where offering sacrifices is pretty much the only avenue for the forgiveness of sins. It is the only avenue for the forgiveness of sins, something that God has instructed them to do. But David even says in verse 16, you would not delight in this. If I were to do this ritual of cleansing that you have ordered, it would not delight and enliven your heart, God, because you're looking to my heart, the thing that is going to not be despised by you is is a broken and contrite heart. Again, we get back to Jesus' words in Matthew 15. You can honor God with your lips, but your heart can be far from him. And David recognizes that. He says, I can do the thing. I can do the behavior. I can figure out how to make penance. You've given us books that we can read on how to do penance, but God, I know you're going for my heart here. That's what you're after. 
And if I go through the motions on killing an ox or a lamb or a dove and I go to the priest as the king of Israel and do all that, it will not delight you if my heart is not broken, is not grieved before you. David knows that God is going for his heart. And again I ask, is this something that would be buried in the middle of our psalm book, our book of songs and prayers to God, something that would not be true? What's the nurturing side of this? Come to the great physician. Come to God. Come to God in brokenness and humility. He asks nothing more. You can't manufacture humility. You can ask him for it. It's simply knowing where we are and where he is, and it comes very naturally. And that is what God is seeking. That is an offering he will not despise. I hit three verses in there. I just want to clarify God's tender and nurturing heart, nurturing by joyfully speaking into our darkest places, his words and his truth. God's tender and nurturing heart in creating in us a new heart and not despising us, his tender, not despising us as we come to him in our brokenness. That's the second observation. Here's the third and final observation. God's inclined and willing heart for sinners. All that has been prayed in Psalm 51 is on the basis of God's heart. Remember verse 1, according to, according to. Our hope in our sin is not to mend our habits or behave better. Our hope is to come to God broken and contrite and have him work in our hearts. In verses 11 and 12, we see this picture of God's inclined and willing heart. He is interested, predisposed, inclined, willing, eager to work in our hearts. Read verse 11 and 12 with me. Cast not away, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. God is inclined. David says, would you uphold me with a willing spirit, with your spirit, God, that is actually eager and leaning into me, not as we so often do with others where we hold up our end of the bargain, but begrudgingly so because of how the person has let us down. No, no, eagerly the heart of God, inclined, willing to uphold David in spite of everything that he has done. So the two sides of the same coin are seen in 11 and 12. Cast me not out from your spirit. Give me your Holy Spirit. Don't take your spirit from me. That should be enough to ask. <laughs> that, I, I don't know if I would be willing to ask more in this moment, but David does. He boldly says, don't only take your spirit from me, willingly hold me up with your spirit. It's almost as if David is saying, God, I want you to want me right now. <laughs> That's very... English way of saying that, maybe even kind of pop culture-y. But that gets at the idea of David asking God, would you, would you be willing to uphold me now, even in what I've done? And we see that the heart of God is willing, that his spirit is willing, not cold, not distant, but engaged and wanting to be engaged with us. This is an act of God, God at work in our lives.
So this morning, we opened by sharing, I opened by sharing my concern that many of us are setting our minds on behavior, behavioral fixes, rather than the need of our heart to be captured by God. And if we continue to give attention only to our behavior, the behavior is going to continue to loop in on itself. As we said earlier, that's palliative. That's not curative. That's not getting at the heart, the heart that God wants to get at. So if you're wondering this morning if this is too good to be true, if you feel like we're just kind of saying, hey, you know what? Don't worry about the behavior. Don't worry about the actions. Go to God with your heart. We are saying that. I am saying that. It sounds too good to be true, and it kind of is. It sounds too easy, and I would just say it wasn't easy. It's easier for us, but the opening line of the psalm is, Have mercy on me, O God. And then I've said before, we get the double according to. Do you know that anyone in the history of humanity that has prayed to God, Have mercy on me, O God, that has prayed that in faith, God is inclined to answer that. Maybe not pulling them out of their circumstances. Maybe not undoing what's already done, but calling out to God in faith to have mercy on you. That is a trigger for God's heart to be engaged. And there's only one person who ever did not receive the response from God by saying, have mercy on me, O God, and it's Jesus It's Jesus Christ when he was in the evening after a meal beset with fears of going to the cross, praying to God, let this cup pass from me, if you will. In a way, in a way, asking God for mercy. But God the Father does not give him mercy. And as Jesus is going to the cross, being obedient unto death, it is a sign that God is going for our hearts, going that far for our hearts to capture our affections and bring us back to him. Jesus is the only man who ever didn't need to pray for a clean heart. And in a shocking reversal, he's a a long descendant of David, the king who wrote this psalm. Christ is the fulfillment of that mercy. His death is what covers the sins of all of us. What David prayed for was fulfilled in Christ. So on what account can we this morning pray, have mercy on me, O God, what you came in bearing, whatever you're going through, what's the according to? What can you pray for God? You go to Christ and the substitutionary atonement that happened on the cross. Then you see that as he went to the cross, Christ was going for your heart. So now we know more about God's heart. Maybe it looks a little different than you're used to thinking about it this morning, but this is what we're presented with in Psalm 51 as a man at a low, 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 low point in his life can lean on nothing else but the heart of God to come to him. So may we collapse before this God, broken and contrite, and know that he's going for our hearts and we'll we'll clean them. Let's pray.